SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide leading the conversation The viewpoint weekdays 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM On the viewpoint. Africa is one of the most exposed regions to the adverse effects of climate change despite contributing the least to global warming. The region is already disproportionately feeling the impacts related to a changing climate. Devastating cyclones affecting some three million people in Mozambique, Malawi, Zimbabwe and parts of South Africa in the spring of 2018 but even with these adversities the fossil fuels business particularly coal continues to grow at an impressive rate throughout Africa new coal-fired plants are being projected for South Africa to Senegal Kenya to Mozambique via the DRC and Ivory Coast the question we are engaging this evening is how can Africa mitigate the impact of climate change why are we as a continent as a people as a society hardest hit yet our contribution and degradation of this climate is the least put differently we're having a conversation a legal one as well as a scientific one on environmental management my guests professor oluwatoyin adejonwo osho have i said that right prof yes you have if you recall she was here last week thursday and she introduced herself last week wednesday i beg your pardon introducing herself saying that she'd be back this week well she held her word we have held ours she's back environmental law professor and lecturer at the faculty of law university of lagos visiting scholar visiting professor at university of pretoria center for human rights together with a young south african miss sivuisi wemapapu environmental sciences graduate from uct currently a masters student at the university of the free state she's the scientist the law the science the vision tell us please professor about environmental management why it is even at all necessary okay Thank you very much for having me Sangeso. Um yeah so environmental management is necessary especially now because of you know concepts like sustainable development. Um so basically sustainable development is um development that meets the needs of present generation without jeopardizing the ability of future generations to meet their own needs and that's what environmental management is all about now the law is the vehicle it is the driving vehicle that would ensure that um legislations that that um appropriate responses are put in place and that so there are there there are legislations that would regulate how man relates mm. to the environment how we exploit finite natural resources how and then it also promotes concepts um environmental law principles like the precautionary principle the polluter pays principle so yes environmental management is key it um and law is the driving vehicle that you know allows it to function in the society same question to you sivu isiwe mapapu who is an environmental scientist in the true sense of scientist give us the scientific perspective thus to that very same question environmental management why is it necessary the vision behind it 
Um, all right, uh, and well, thank you for having me here. Um, well, the science is um, in environmental management. What I believe, as we're having a conversation earlier with Prof, is that for any sort of like regulations or legislations to occur, you need to understand the science behind um, the impacts of whatever it is that you're discussing at that particular point. Um, and then also, because once you understand the science, then you can sort of like come up with the regulations, the control measures, um, medications, um, and and then so then that will then give the basis and the driving force of um, environmental management. So, yes. How vulnerable is nature right now because of the actions or inactions of human beings, of governments. Okay, so um, where we are now um, in 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 on Earth, basically, um, in terms of environmental um, uh, management, and where we are, like um, with like Prof said, like our resources being depleted, is that this is probably the worst that Earth has ever been in um, in terms of what the environment is going through right now because with the rising numbers of um, human populations then there's also like the pressure also increases on what the environment can produce for us and for the longest time in in history that we have just been taking 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 without actually looking at the consequences that we're going to face in the next five years in the next 50 years or in the next century um even in that sense so to answer your question we are at a very very like terrible point but also um with the turnaround that's happened since the early um 90s um there's also now been like sort of like an awareness that listen we need to stick, take a step back and sort of like you know go back to the drawing board and regroup and um sort of like whatever we do we do it with that conscious mind and have the environment right there at the forefront of whatever it is that we do environmental protection per se at the forefront L let's talk scientifically and i'm going to return to you prof yes. oluwatoyin adejonwa osho who is a law professor at the university of lagos in south africa now at the center for human rights at the university of pretoria as a visiting professor as a visiting scholar miss sivuyesiwa mapapu a local environmental scientist from the University of the Free State now doing her master's. When the Amazon burns, because the government of Brazil, for the, for the most part, has decided that they want to use up that land okay. for some economic activity, the Amazon provides some close to 40% of the world's oxygen. Yes. Yeah. When you've got the Arctic... Okay, let me stop right there. Beg your pardon. I have to take an ad break now, and I don't want to sort of break the question. I'm so sorry for the listeners. Let's take a quick ad break. We'll return soon. On the viewpoint. I was asking Ms. Sivuiso Mapapu, and this conversation is about environmental sciences, environmental management, the scientific aspects to it or the legal aspects to it. The question that I was asking, the Amazon burning 40% of the world's clean air, the Arctic's melting, rising water levels, the loss of secured, if you like, freshwater supplies integrating non-reversibly with salt water as a result of that migration has to take place, at least of humans and of animals. The swallowing up of the natural environment that cannot move, your flora, so to speak, mm -hmm. and the adjustments that nature has to make. How seriously dangerous is that 
for in fact the livelihoods of societies of us men we know for instance robin island many eons ago in the ice age was one part of africa you could walk from where traditionally now cape town is table mountain to where robin island is now impossible why because of rising water levels mm -hmm. we're seeing that happening at a faster rate now than times before mm -hmm. what impact does this have on us as people scientifically okay so um whatever pressures that are put on the environment right firstly um, the environment has sort of like its own ways sort of like counteract this impact. But now because of the scale that we are at right now, then the pressures are, are getting to a point of just being too much, which is why we're seeing these changes happening. And then um, now your question is um, to how then um, does the, if I got you right, mm. then that's environment now. What's um, the threat to us? The, the threat to us is that we have a threat of the biodiversity loss, as you talked about migration of, um, you know, your aquatic um, animals, <coughs> and then there's um, loss of um, plants in the certain regions. And also because now we're going to have loss of um, fresh water, right? Um, as you can see that the impacts that these have are, you know, at a dire uh, position and you know, the only thing that I think that can be done at this point, particular time, is to just sort of like um, have these um, legislations that we put um, for, 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 for national, um, for countries at the local um, scale, uh, national scale and a global scale to then um, help to mitigate. And it's, it's not going to be easy to go back to how things were in the beginning. But, okay, did you want to say no, something? No, 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 but, but. Carry on. It's not going to be easy to go back to how things were because that's quite impossible, you know. But what we need to do is to sort of like look at where we are and have um, in place things that we can do to counteract the, 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 the problems and the, and the pressures that we've already put onto our environment. And which is why there is what we call environmental management. When you have lawyers, you have specialists in the science field, that need to, you know, bring their brains together. Before we talk about capital and its contribution, mm -hmm. never mind just the general human behavior in terms of necessitated by growth in population figures, yeah. never mind what that happens. And we're going to talk very briefly, in fact, extensively about capital. The response of governments is especially critical. The partnerships, regional as well as international, is important. Mm -hmm. And even the actions of one has a serious potential to adversely affect another yes. who has not at all contributed, if you will, mm -hmm. to the environmental degradation or harm. Mm -hmm. How then do we galvanize societies or state actors, non-state actors even, to sing off the same hymn sheet? Why do we still have a Donald Trump who's in total and complete denial of what all of good science is saying? Um, I think it's because of the fear of the the fear, which is quite wrong. The fear of the impact that environmental response or good environmental governance would have on economic development. I mean, research has shown that um, good governance, especially um, especially environmental governance and environmental management does not necessarily 
translates into job loss and insecurities. Rather, environmental management and environmental governance and response to the negative impacts of environmental challenges would would actually spur or create um, jobs. So jobs in, you know, renewable energy, jobs in energy efficiency, and and so many other sectors that have actually been created as a result of the response to environmental management, to environmental governance. So, um, when you talk about coordination that then is required, mm-hmm. for instance, we were talking off air about the relationship between the United States and Canada, mm-hmm. the great air pollution that takes place in Canada mm-hmm. and how the winds move, that smog, if you like, yes. or that pollution through the air mm-hmm. into the United States. This is a problem created by Canada Yes, that has an impact and effect largely in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So whether they like each other or not, they have to sit down and talk. Exactly. Because the national interest for Canada is the economic Making, drive behind yes. what they do. And the corresponding effect on the U.S. government is, is the, the environmental impact, harm exactly. and the social impact in terms of now communities, loss of, suddenly yes. loss of amenities through the health effect. Exactly. And if it's a the region that impacts, relies yeah. highly on tourism, well, there goes that. Mm-hmm. The losses that come on the one end, driven by the gains of the other partner who might not necessarily want to be at the same negotiating table because where one gives, the other immediately loses. How then do we strike a balance? I'm still looking at it at a legal level. When you talk about international instruments, how do they, international instruments, how do they look to rationalize the interests? How do they look to coordinate and to get parties to cooperate? Okay, so international cooperation is important with regards to environmental management because most of the environmental challenges or most of yes most of the environmental challenges we have are transboundary so for instance climate change is a transboundary mm-hmm. issue the ozone layer depletion is a transboundary issue and, and and as such because of that because environmental um, challenges are usually transboundary. It usually forces nations to come together, to come to the negotiating table and seek to strike an agreement. And that's what we found especially, and this has been quite successful with the response to climate change. Mm-hmm. So with regards to the response to climate change, it has actually, it has brought nations to the negotiating table, number one. It has forced nations to recognize that um, some countries historically did not contribute to the impacts of climate change, but right now they have less capacity to deal with it. So it has actually highlighted principles like the common but differentiated responsibility, which is what we find in the Kyoto Protocol, Mm. the United Nations Framework Convention on um, climate change. So sometimes when nations come together at the negotiating table to negotiate on environmental instruments as a response to an environmental challenge, Mm. you would find that um, so countries would have different responsibilities depending on their capacities. So if you look at the Climate Change Convention, for instance, 
um, developing countries do not have as much responsibilities as developed countries have. Hmm. With the Paris Agreement now, that's the um, successor to the Kyoto Protocol, all countries have responsibilities to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, their local greenhouse gas emissions, according to their individual capacity. So, you know, um, number one, because of the transboundary nature of Mm. environmental challenges, it forces nations to come together, to work together, to seek to find a common ground, to seek to address environmental challenges. Because quite unlike, um, I mean, okay, so some of the impacts of, for instance, climate change. Mm. She's talked about the scientific impact of climate change. Climate change has economic impact. It has social impact as Uh well. So uh it would lead to, number one, loss of livelihood. It is a threat to water resources, food security. Um, There's this this thinking now that uh, very soon countries would not only... um, that countries would not only, you know, have, um, what's it called now? That um, some of the issues that countries would have to grapple with yes. would be access to natural resources. Sure. Which would then threaten their security and then sometimes lead to conflict. So those are some of the impacts that environmental challenges have and that forces nations to come together to the negotiating table and seek to find a common ground and a working solution. Let's domesticate the kind of discussions we are in. Just for the record, we are talking about Africa climate justice with Professor Oluwatoyin Adejonwa Osho, environmental law professor and lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Lagos, currently in the country at the University of Pretoria Centre for Human Rights, where she is a visiting professor. Together in studio as well with Ms. Sivuisi Wemapapu, environmental sciences graduate, from UCT. Now she is a master's student at the University of the Free State. Perhaps just to onboard everybody else, let me just give Sivuisu an opportunity just to tell us about what her studies are focusing on before we get into now the domestic aspects of environmental impact assessments. Why these as a precursor to any major development or movement that's going to affect the environment and environmental impact assessment is necessary. I'm going to ask her to answer that question once she tells us the nature of her studies now, how she has evolved as an environmental scientist, so that we can get into some of the scientific aspects of this discussion. If you want to contribute, of course, 011 482 1510 or 9216. Okay, so I studied um, in my undergrad um, geography and environmental science. And then I went to do um, environmental and geographical science. And now I'm doing um, an MSc in um, environmental management. So um, throughout, um, uh, from my undergraduate years, like for me, I'd say that the most, uh, one of the things that interested me the most was soil erosion, was soil erosion. Um, And then um, moving on to um, 
uh, my postgrad um, studies, then it was um, the impact of construction and development on soil erosion. Mm. And but then because of um, other modules that I was doing, then it sort of like brought me back to um, water quality and waste management, and which is what like now my uh, uh, project is focused on, um, like uh, bulk um, wastewater reuse in municipal um, uh, metropolitan municipalities in South Africa. Mm. So um, what I would say is um, environmental management in general is like very broad. There's literally like everything and anything that you can study and put together. And it would always um, come up to be like an aha moment at the end. And so um, like the evolution of um, in my studies, that's how they've been. And yeah. Let me follow up on that because this is somewhat key to your studies at this level of engagement. When yes. we talk about then an environmental impact assessment mm -hmm. before the government decides this housing scheme is going to be built there, before it is going to be a highway that's going to pass through, for instance, a river. Do we just literally block the river? Do we go over the river? Mm -hmm. Do we resettle communities? Do we disrupt this biodiversity? And with the disruption of this biodiversity, you can expect that the animals who rely on this particular space of biodiversity to make the necessary migration, what are the competing factors that ought to be considered at its heart then, with this as a background, in line and in context of especially water management, which okay. is South Africa, a critical factor now yes. with our lack of regulations being implemented, certainly. Mm -hmm. What is environmental impact assessments? Because it has to, it has to be the basis of any major it has to. activity, business, yes. public, whatever. Yes. So what environmental um, impact assessments entails, um, basically on a broader scale, is that um, with whatever development that um, is going to be put into place, you need to understand firstly the impacts that are going to come with that development. And then se secondly, you need to understand who's going to be um, you know, affected by these impacts. And because it's not only just about the environment, but it's also about the so social and the economic um, aspects. And then um, thirdly, um, once um, you have scoped through what those impacts are and how you can mitigate them, then you also need to have control measures and monitoring um, um, legislations for after you have, um, you know, done your, your, your development. So the EIA is basically involved in every step of that particular development. Basically, it, it, what the EIA does is to ensure that whatever is happening, it's at a sustainable manner. That is why it's there. That is why it was implemented in South Africa. So the EIA is not a once-off. In other words, yes, it endorses the commencement mm. of whatever activity. Yes. Mm. It's an ongoing, it's an process, ongoing process, so to speak, to make which sure. Which could literally go on for as long as 50 years after as that, long as that. Yes, yeah. after that has been, after whatever development has, has been done. A quick question to you before I revert to the professor. When you talk about the social impact, do you want to unpack social in the true sense, what it means, the social impact of a project or of whatever activity is going to take place when you're measuring it? What are you measuring when you say social? Social impact. Okay, so um, what I can say is the the people, right, are part of the environment, number one. And um, then there is what you call um, in environmental justice that whatever 
um, sort of like legislations or regulations that are put into place in a, in a particular area, right, they need to be in line with um, the living standards of the people in that area because you can't, for, for, for certain instances, you can't compare um, like uh, saying your water tariffs that you're going to give up. If you're saying that it's five rands per liter, it cannot be five rands per liter throughout the spectrum of South Africa because um, there's different um, social um where people are like um, in, in their social um, um, living. And then secondly, um, what uh, social impacts entail is that what, um, what, what are the people going to gain um, from this development once it's there, right? And then if you're saying that you're going to um, build your, your mall um, in this area, right? And then this area was predominantly used for farming, what are then these people going to do that we're using this area for that? If this area had like a cultural significance or a religious significance, then what then are you, you know, leaving behind that these people who sort of like dependent on this area, like, so it's basically about um, the impacts that are literally faced by the people in and within that area. Yes. I'm going to ask you in the context of what you have submitted to think about Kolobeni because in many respects it does raise a lot of the issues that you have talked about. Here is a pristine part of the Eastern Cape's wild coast region renowned for its tourism and the tranquility by yes. which the residents have come to or the community have come to accept that mm -hmm. this is our home, this is who we are. They've got grave sites there, so talking about cultural significance, if you like, it holds sway to them. They are happy with the economic enterprise that takes place there in mm -hmm. that it is largely subsistence farming with coupled that with some tourism. They, for the most part, are happy if anything in the news site is anything to go by. But yet you have the rural chief or the headman of that particular region who sees the economic spins that may come from mining that particular region and inherently here are the tensions. We know exactly what may possibly happen there if this goes unchecked. Mm -hmm. I want to give you an opportunity to think about Kolobeni and some of the issues from an environmental management perspective that ought to be considered. The tensions that therefore are invited by the virtue of the economic promise mm -hmm. versus the certainty of what currently pertains. Prof, let's look at this now in a legal context, environmental impact assessments. They effectively come from the South African Constitution, and you said you had read parts of the Constitution and the NEMA, the National Environmental Management Act of the country. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about South Africa, for instance, that satisfies you in the context of the commitments that as a people we have made for the purposes of managing and managing well the environment constitutionally in terms of the enabling instruments mm -hmm. and what behavior you have seen from the government. Okay, so it was quite interesting to read the constitution and to find that section 24 of the, con of the South African constitution yes. guarantees a right to and healthy to a healthy environment, um, which is quite different from a lot of the of the other constitutions that you would find in Africa, or even in the rest of the world. So, for instance, if you look at the Nigerian Constitution, the Nigerian Constitution does not guarantee a fundamental right to a healthy environment. I mean, there is a fundamental right chapter in our constitution, so it guarantees the right to life, um, to you know, freedom of movement, and all those other um, fundamental rights. But it does not. Um, the right to to a healthy environment is not guaranteed in our constitution. It is an aspirational 
um, um, policy objective of the government, mm. which basically means that you cannot. It is not a justify. It is not a justiciable right that mm. you could go to court and seek to enforce to to enforce in a court of law in Nigeria. Quite different in South Africa because Section Twenty Four of your constitution guarantees an inherent right. Yes, it's an enforceable right. In fact, it's 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 it's, and then one of the other aspects of that right is that. It creates responsibilities, not just for the government to manage the environment and to protect the environment, mm -hmm. but it also creates responsibilities to the citizens of South Africa to manage and to protect the environment. So it creates responsibilities for key stakeholders, for the private sectors, for the public sector, to jointly you know, manage and protect the environment. This is... You know, this is quite good, considering the fact also that the African Charter on Human and People's Rights mm. guarantees to, to you know, to, uh, to the African people the right to a healthy environment. But what you would find is when you go to individual countries and you look at their constitutions... There's some way off. Uh, yes, the constitutions do not guarantee... A, a right to a healthy environment it's usually an aspirational right mm. a policy objective that the government aspires to achieve it's not justiciable it's not you know it's not enforceable in a court of law so we see where my papu environmental yes. sciences graduate now a master student at free state as a scientist mm -hmm and as a community of scientists. Yes. What is your biggest challenge with capital, with commerce, with trade, and its respect or lack of respect for nature, for the environment, that you wish even a basic crash course, everybody, especially in big business, knew? Yes. So as to have less of this tension we see, between business and the need to drive profits and you as scientists the need to preserve responsibly yes. the environment okay so okay with for me to answer the question it's a very difficult question to answer because um basically this is now a science versus capital that's exactly the question yes and for me to answer that, like I said, it's it's quite difficult because all it boils down to is um, who are the bigger stakeholders in this? Who's going to gain more and who's got, you know, the backing up more? Is it the science or is it the capital? And usually um, most cases... It's capital. It's capital that will probably win that fight, if I put it that, like that. But then um, in certain instances, like you mentioned um, the Kolobini um, instance and also with the Roybos, um instance in um, the Western Cape, um, in local settings like that where um, the, the chiefs, they want to, you know, have this income um, coming in, um, what they sort of like at, at times fail to understand is that there's what we call excess benefit sharing, that whatever income that comes in, they have to sort of like share it within the rest of the community. But 
that only ever happens scarcely. Yes, yeah. Um, so there's that. But then at like a national level or like a, a bigger, like you know, sort of like level, if it's like this big corporate um, um, company that wants to develop in like a, a region that was predominantly used maybe for farming, but now they want to turn it into a hotel or you know something along those lines, um, then there would be times where. You know, an EIA will be an EIA would be generated, but for some reason, you know, it goes through. You know, and you ask yourself how, because when you look at the impacts, and you know who's going to benefit from this, and um, you know, it just doesn't make sense. But then, how then, you know, capital will sort of like, uh, you know, make it seem light or you know, prettify it. Then they're going to tell us that they are creating jobs. You know, then this is what's going to go back. To, to the people But how many people are actually going to benefit If you're going to employ uh, 100 people out of 25,000 people Does this tension so to speak Not require more Coordination Does it not require first of all Legal instruments to be in place To regulate all of this Professor Does it not need For government to have mm. proper plans To have proper projections yes. To share its plans Based on its policies does it then not need to buy in, so to speak, private sector to be a party to these policy mm. objectives mm. and how government intends to do so? Does it then also not need to engage science and say, this is a small loss yeah. in relation to this greater gain? Mm -hmm. Does it equally not need to engage science and say, we are backing you, you need to give us the proper evidence because I don't think or we don't think as the public sector the private sector truly gets the impact, which will not only harm the community, but ultimately harm their business because it does shorten the lifespan of this business if the science is as harmed to this extent. How do we then make sure this tension Usivuiswa speaks of, mm -hmm. that is oftentimes won by <laughs> capital, is yeah. regulated better? Both parties understand where the other is coming from. Okay, so I think we're talking about corporate social responsibility mm -hmm. here. And there's this... There's, there are two schools of thought here. Um, there's a school of thought that thinks that corporate social responsibility, that they should, they should be governed by the government. So it should be regulated. There should be an act to govern it and to regulate how countries or how companies, how the private sector, how companies, um, you know, Mm, no. carry out its corporate social responsibility. Yes. But there's this other school of thought that thinks that corporate social responsibility is a voluntary act. It's like an environmental ethics. It's like the company giving back to its local community. Mm -hmm. And as such, the company should be free to decide on the areas that it is passionate about and the areas that it wants to, you know, it wants to positively influence within the community. So there is that tension between those schools of thought. But definitely corporate social responsibility is the, is the answer to the tensions between, you know, economic gains and also the need to protect the environment. But the question is... Should it be regulated? Does it need to be regulated for it to have a positive impact within the community? That's a question after the break. To regulate CSI or not, 
That is the question Professor Oluwatoyin Adejonwo Osho will answer together with Ms. Sivuisi Wemapapu in her contribution as a scientist. It's a conversation between law and science and where the two, funnily enough, actually meet <laughs> because ultimately it drives the greater vision. Effective environmental management whilst capitalizing fairly so on the economic benefits that the environment itself presents. We return after the ad break with these two lovely ladies as we wrap up the conversation on Africa and climate justice. Master student at UFS, Professor Oluwatoyin Adejono Osho, lawyer, professor, Lagos and University of Pretoria. As we wrap up this conversation, we left a particular question hanging. Professor, you asked it, and I'm going to ask you to answer it because I'm surely not going to answer that. The regulation or not of CSI, particularly in the context of CSI responding to environmental challenges, Mm -hmm. management of the environment, the Mm -hmm. rehabilitation of the environment, the protection of the environment, or the ensuring of the environment post the life cycle of this economic activity. Mm -hmm. What is the best way to ensure that the environmental wins, be it through the regulation of CSI or not, driven by capital or driven by civic society, or driven by government? How do we optimize that relationship together with the interests, public interest, social interest, commercial interest, and the scientific interests mm-hmm. of making sure to the extent possible the environment maintains its integrity? Okay, so I'm of the view that um, corporate social responsibility should not be regulated. So we don't need a legislation to govern and to manage corporate social responsibility because really um, we do not want to turn the, turn the state to a nanny state but at the same time um, yes yes because really we do not want to turn the state into a nanny state but at the same time corporate social responsibility is important because it is one of the ways in which the private sector um, contributes to the protection and the governance of the environment. So yes, so definitely corporate social responsibility should not be legislated, but at the same time, it is it is quite important. Final question and very briefly to you, Ms. Mapapu. You'll graduate soon. Where will your skills be best placed in South Africa, knowing that we have such a long way to go in some critical areas, not least our water management? Um, Okay, so I think um, for me personally, it would probably be anywhere within um, waste management or wastewater management in South Africa, more especially because, um, like, where I am right now and what I'm doing, um, you know, it's sort of like opened a new door that, you know, I knew existed, but I didn't know it was this dire. So that's what I think. Fantastic. We're going to have to leave it there. It's 21.45. Thank you so much to Professor Oluwatoyin Adejono Osho, together with Ms. Sivuisiwa Mapapu, respectively professors of law and environmental scientists at Lagos and Free State, respectively. Thank you so much to everybody who participated in the last one hour 45. Let's go to Infigate, one of the great SOPs that Kaili Kumalo himself thoroughly enjoys.